0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: The law has entered and done its work in the believer. The Christian is revealed as still possessing the Adamic nature, even though he has been declared justified and has been joined to Christ in his resurrection. It was the law that brought the knowledge of sin and caused the reaction of the proud flesh against the restraint of the law. Nevertheless, the law is spiritual. It is the individual who is carnal, fleshly, physical, sold under sin.
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Conflict with Evil Within. Many people earnestly desire to quit smoking, but their addiction to nicotine is so powerful that they often give in and will do the very thing they do not want to do. Many believers want to live holy lives unto God, but they are dismayed to find that sin continues to exert a powerful influence on them. What does the Bible teach us about our internal conflict with sin and how we can learn to walk with the Lord in victory and righteousness? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verses 15 through 25. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled The Conflict with Evil Within.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all thy dealings with us day by day, working for our redemption in Christ, and then working in our lives that Christ may be formed in us. Wilt thou bless the truth to each listening heart in this hour, and use it for thy purposes in building us in Christ, and take all the glory unto thyself. For we ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing now our study in Romans 7, beginning with the 15th verse, the story of the great conflict within the heart of the Christian. Some time ago, I ran across a Bible study on the 7th of Romans, which was printed in a leaflet of small circulation. Introducing the article was the following, This article is of the heavy type and therefore needs to be read slowly. It will not appeal to all but is inserted for those who value light from any portion of God's word. It will repay re-reading, I smiled when I read this, for I realized that I have been plowing a straight furrow down through these chapters of Romans, which probably contain the most involved logic that was ever set forth in human language. I suppose that these studies also are of the heavy type, But having set my plowing to go ahead until I have covered the whole field of the epistle, I propose to continue if the Lord gives me the time and strength and to finish the task. I have plowed real fields. And I remember an experience that I had once, which will help to illustrate the portion of scripture which we are meditating. I was seated upon a tractor, pulling a three bottom plow across a field, turning up the black loam behind me in smooth furrows, and experiencing the joy that a man can know in the springtime when he is preparing the earth for receiving the seed that shall bring forth harvest. All of a sudden the points of the plowshares caught on a patch of heavy clay. The trip action went into effect and the shares were pulled free of the soil. It takes patience and special care to plow a field with a patch of clay. Now the portion of scripture in which we're working may be considered heavy by many, but we must not forget that heavy soil is the clay from which the finest pottery can be made, and when it is properly worked and fired, can bring forth vessels of honor fit for the master's use. This is a part of the word by which we are to live, of which our Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And this is a part of the word that can be most useful if it is mastered by the believer. Useful in bringing him out of the stagnation of defeat and into the sweeping movement of triumph in Christ. I do not understand what I am doing, Paul says. It baffles me. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do the things that I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which has made its home within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in the me that is my flesh. To desire good is present with me, but I do not find the strength to accomplish what is good, for I do not do the good that I wish, but the evil I do not wish is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not wish, it is no longer I who do it but sin which dwells within me. So I discover it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil is present. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see another law in my members at war with the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now this passage has excited two sets of theologians to wild statements at two extreme points, while the centrality of truth has frequently been neglected by the commentators because they have been drawn to take sides with one of these extremes. One group, the Arminian theologians, have been frightened and amazed at what they found here. For this passage is indeed the death of all false theologies which say that the entrance of the life of Christ brings experimental perfection in the present life. They have attempted to teach, therefore, that this description is that of an unregenerate man struggling between the higher and lower sides of the Adamic nature. Some of them have even gone so far as to say that a mature Christian, one who has reached some advanced state of blessing, has come to the place where the inward conflict between the flesh and the spirit has ceased, and that sin and its motions may be driven from the flesh by the power of the indwelling spirit of God, and that this should be the case with every advanced Christian, that conflict should have ceased and sin be eradicated. As we saw in our last study, Paul makes no such claim for himself. Those around him would have thought of him as spiritual, but he himself presented himself as being carnal and thereby paved the way for the very highest in the triumph of spiritual development. The other extreme, knowing well that such an application could never stand the test of true exegesis as we shall see, pushed towards a lawlessness, an antinomianism, which has given comfort to many professing Christians who have said in effect that victory over sin was impossible and that therefore the Christian could keep on living in sin with one part of his nature as long as he admitted in the other part of his nature that what he was doing was wrong. Now we shall attack these two extremes and then show the truth that lies between them. Now that this description is not that of an unregenerate man is evident by the verbs that are used to describe this man's attitude toward righteousness and the word of God. Of him it is said that to desire that which is good is present with me. And it speaks in verse 19 of the good that I desire. Furthermore, the writer states, I delight in the law of God. Now, it's impossible for me to conceive that any believers who truly understand the nature of sin and righteousness, who truly understands the teaching of the first three chapters of Romans concerning the state of the unregenerate man, to believe that the Holy Spirit could state that such a one, an unregenerate, desires good, desires righteousness, and delights in the law of God in my inmost self. If there are those who wonder whether the natural conscience of the unregenerate man may not desire good and delight in the law of God, I would reply that such a thought goes contrary to everything that scripture teaches about the nature of the fallen Adam. The natural conscience of the unregenerate can distinguish between right and wrong. At the best, the conscience is a signpost indicating the road that should be traveled but there is no motive power that can take the individual and propel him along the road that is indicated. Conscience may cry with a loud voice in the hearts of some unregenerate men, but such hearts are declared to be deceitful above all things and incurably sick. Furthermore, the Greek word that is used in verse 22 for delight is a very strong word. It is sumedomai and it is found only here in the New Testament. All words that are found only once in the original Greek of the New Testament demand special study. And when we turn to the concordance of the Septuagint, we discover that this word is found in several instances in the ancient translation of the Old Testament. This delight is certainly a good thing, yet our context shows that in the flesh there dwells no good thing. Thus, both the Old Testament use of the word and that in the context of our text prove that the subject of this paragraph is the born-again man. Now, this chapter has shown us several uses of the law, and one final use is now to be presented to us. The people of God are to be delivered from the power of sin. But before he describes the details of the deliverance, the apostle speaks of a further use of the law in teaching God's people the exceeding sinfulness of sin by an experience that is peculiar to themselves. Such is the meaning of the conflict which is now described. One of the best, if not the best explanation of this conflict that I have ever come across was one that was spoken in lectures by an English Bible teacher, B.W. Newton, and printed after his death from notes taken by friends who sat under his ministry. These include the following. The law is still spoken of in this passage as holy, just, and good, but it is not spoken of, and this should be carefully observed, as that which was shunned or dreaded, but as that which was consented to, desired, and delighted in. The new man, seeing it is created according to God in righteousness and true holiness, must... By the very necessity of its nature, rejoice in that which is holy, just, and good. I delight in the law of God after the inner man is a sentence that may be truthfully used by everyone in whom the new man is. And where much practical grace has been experienced, the truth of this sentence will be realized. Yet the very fact of these new desires and delights being in the believer. Is made the means of teaching him one of its deepest experimental lessons, respecting the sin that dwells within him. Let me expand and paraphrase that which follows. When we are born again, we have new desires that come with the new creation of the divine nature within us. However intense these new desires may be, however deeply we may desire to love God perfectly and to serve Him perfectly, we find within ourselves a principle of evil that is antagonistic to these divine desires. No matter how much we may long to banish from our hearts every desire and every tendency that is contrary to the will of God, we find in our regenerate beings this principle of evil that is antagonistic and which meets every claim of God with unvarying habitual resistance. The energy of this evil may be developed in different degrees in the hearts of different believers. But as to its essential character, it is alike in all. It acts for evil and against good. This principle of evil obstructs every movement that we make towards God and impairs every action that we direct toward him. None of our counsels, none of our deeds are found to have the perfectness which the law of God requires and which we, as the new creation, desire. When we are born again, the desires of the new nature are divine desires. If we're to understand the struggle that takes place within us, we must define what we mean by good and evil. We do certain things that the world might think good, but we know that the good is mixed with something that is not perfect. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And yet we desire from our new hearts a good that is unmixed, that is absolute. That is to say, the only type of good which the law, in its divine severity and its divine righteousness, could ever recognize as being true good. But however truly we in our new man may long after this absolute unmixed good, we can never do it. Such good is utterly beyond us. It is of the utmost importance that we realize that the Holy Spirit through Paul is talking about this absolute unmixed good, that good which was only once found upon this earth when the Lord Jesus the Holy One was here and which is now found only in heaven. This passage does not speak then of that kind of good which believers through grace may and do perform here on earth good which, though not perfect and unmixed, is nevertheless accepted by God through Jesus Christ. This passage does not say that I can perform nothing that is acceptable, but it does assert that I cannot perform the good which the law demands and in which I, as the new man, delight. I purposely do not introduce philosophy into my explanations of Paul's writing, but the student who knows Greek philosophy well will realize that Paul was keenly aware of the arguments of Plato and his followers on what constituted the good. Plato wrote at some length on the good and the beautiful as abstractions, as perfections. And in this paragraph which we are studying and which describes the conflict within the heart of the believer, good must be understood only in the sense of that which is good In the divinely perfect sense, and evil is that which falls short of perfect good, even in the least conceivable degree of such perfectness. It is the failure to distinguish the kind of good spoken of in this chapter which has created so many of the difficulties in understanding it. It must be remembered, too, that sin throughout this passage is personified. It is regarded as a living agent with whom we naturally are identified. The very first result of sin within us, long before there is any outward act of sin, is evil desire. This has been called concupiscence. And such evil desire can no more be separated from sin than heat can be separated from fire. Now this evil desire, being in itself an inward act, precedes the deliberate choices of the soul and all outward acts that are developed from these choices. Indeed, evil desire may be resisted by us and never go on to a deliberate intention or choice. Yet evil has been done by us the moment a wrong desire has been excited within us. It was Luther, I believe, who said, I cannot keep the birds from flying around my head, but by the grace of God I can keep them from building their nests in my hair. Now, the comparison is not a perfect one, for these evil birds do not fly around outside us, but our heart is their cage, where they never cease to beat their wings. It is true that we can keep many or most of their eggs from hatching, but the foul birds are ever flying within, and they will move and fly as long as there is breath in our body. We are obliged, therefore, to say, the good I desire I do not, for unmixed and perfect good is beyond us. And when we further consider how, notwithstanding all our watchfulness, elements of infirmity and evil mingle with everything we feel or think or do, we are obliged to add the evil I desire not, that I do. Now to this explanation, many perhaps will be disposed to refuse their assent. A Christian, they will say, does not habitually do what the new man hates. To say that he will would make him practically the servant of iniquity, and this we are expressly told in the sixth of Romans that he is not. Now it is indeed true that a Christian is not a servant of iniquity. He who is a doer of sin, says the Holy Spirit through John, one who habitually walks in the path of evil, does thereby prove that he has not seen Christ, neither known him. Such a one does not resist, but indulges and follows, and that habitually, the impulses of sin that dwell within him. To say that a Christian thus yields himself up to sin and that he cannot help so obeying it is sheer lawlessness, antinomianism. So also is the attempt to take these words, the evil I would not, that I do, and make them mean that the Christian does and must serve sin. I do not deny that lawlessness has been taught from this passage, but certainly not rightfully so. Are the words to do evil capable of no other meaning than that in which we apply them to the habitual service of sin? Does the eye of God, judging according to the strict holiness of his law, detect sin only in such developments of it as are outward and palpable and have in them the character of unmixed evil which is found in the actions of the unregenerate world? Is there no inner man, no inward world of thought and feeling which his eye scrutinizes? Is not a thought of foolishness sin? Is not the slightest bias to evil, the slightest tendency toward anything false or wrong, or the slightest want of readiness, or of capacity in perfectly following the path of holiness, sin? So the scriptures teach. If therefore when a Christian seeks to serve God, it be found that sin within him puts forth the slightest power to obstruct the action or to mar the mode of its performance, if it puts forth one desire or causes one momentary feeling that is contrary to or falls short of the perfectness of God, then that desire or that feeling is in the sight of God an act. Sin has wrought something in us and by us, and we are identified with that which is thus wrought in us. And but for the grace of God would be identified with it forever, for sin is naturally a part of ourselves. We have therefore done something which in the new man we hate, and although the world will refuse to call it a deed, and will persist in extenuating human frailty as they term it, And although they will not allow that evil desire, if resisted, is sin, yet the law of God determines otherwise. And we must never forget that there are some Christians that adopt this attitude of the world and believe that the thought and frailty of the human heart is not sin. Nor can there be a truer form of lawlessness than to say that the impulses and strugglings of sin are not sin if they are resisted. Grace, it is true, does not impute them to a believer as sin. That is a different question. We are not now speaking of the pardoning power of grace, but we are speaking of what it is which grace pardons. If then there be an active power within us that hinders, mars, and taints our efforts after all perfect good, and renders the performance of perfect good hopeless, And if we cannot, though we would, free ourselves either from the presence of this evil power or from its working, then are we in a very intelligible sense subject to the doings and actings of an evil principle within us, which in the new man we hate. Now of the course of this struggle and its victory, the Lord willing, we shall take it up from this point in our next study. Our God and Father, we pray Thee that Thou shalt bless Thy people to Thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: The road to sanctification is difficult and there are many struggles along the way. But the Lord is faithful to His promises and more than able to preserve you by His grace unto eternal life. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Conflict with Evil Within. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Conflict with Evil Within or simply request message number R7-15. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Temptation and How to Meet It. Temptation comes to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil and pulls us away from God towards sin and disobedience. How can we effectively fight against its powerful influence? This free booklet traces the history of temptation, identifies its various sources and manifestations, and outlines the biblical strategies for effectively dealing with temptation in whatever form it takes. Ask for your free copy of Temptation and how to meet it when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org.